Welcome to Collected Talks of David Solomon, podcasts on Jewish history, the Bible, Jewish mysticism, philosophy, and thought. Find out more about David's upcoming classes, publications, and other recorded lectures by visiting davidsolomon.online. And now, here's the lecture. Shana Tova. This is Marjorie Solomon. Thank you for joining us for another installment of the podcast. This episode will be a little different. In advance of Yom Kippur, we've decided to pull together a mix of segments of lectures that David has given over the years, dealing with the subject of Teshuvah. I will make short introductions in advance of each segment to give you a sense of its thematic and chronological context, which we hope will come together like a patchwork of explorations of Teshuvah that you find useful as we move towards Yom Kippur. Let's begin with the first segment, taken from a series on the Treasar, the 12 Minor Prophets, that David gave in Jerusalem in 2009. I'm going to talk for a few minutes about the book of Yonah. Now, the book of Yonah is a book that all of us read at least once a year. There's no captive audience like an audience on Mincha of Yom Kippur. You've got nowhere to go. You've got no better place to be. We all read Sefer Yonah every year, so we all know it. We all know the story. I'm not going to stand here and just go over the story of Yonah. Although it is a very, very one of the most perfectly formed, cohesive narratives in Tanakh. It's four chapters. Every chapter happens in a different scene. The first chapter is on a ship. The second chapter is in a fish. The third chapter is in a city. The fourth chapter is on a hilltop outside the city. It's very, very simple. It's very clear. But don't be fooled by its appearance. Yonah is a very, very deep book. It's a book that fits well within this transformative event of the Nevi'im that I'm talking about. And I want to try tonight, and just for a few minutes, place it historically and thematically and look a little deeper to see exactly what it's doing. On the one hand, some people have wanted to say about Yonah that it shows evidence of a type of Hellenic thinking. They want to say it's late. The reason they want to say it's late is because they say, want to say that Yonah is our Oedipus. What's the story with Oedipus? Here's a guy who's trying all his life to run away from his fate, to try and fool the gods, but at the end of the day, he ends up totally fulfilling the prophecies made about him. However, Yonah is completely different. Yonah is not Oedipus. Yonah is not running away from his fate. He's running away from his calling. He's running away from something that he knows he needs to do. He's running away from the voice of God that's asking him to fulfill his potential as Yonah. We generally understand Yonah to be living here. Pretty much around the time we've been looking at of Hosea Amos in the Northern Kingdom, because we know from the Book of Kings, which mentions a guy called Yonah ben Amitai, who is a Navi, a prophet, living in the reign of Jeroboam II, of Yeroboam Hasheni, in the Northern Kingdom. That big, stable, prosperous reign that I've been talking about, that the prophets Hosea and Amos are going on about. That's the one. That's when Yonah lives because the Tanakh tells us that's where he lives. Not in the book of Yonah, but in the book of Kings. Now, by the time he's living in Yerav Amasheni, if we follow Chazal, not according to what's written, but if we follow Chazal, then he's quite old because we already have two understandings of Yonah. By the time we get to Yonah, the rabbis tell us, it's not explicitly stated, the rabbis tell us that we have in fact already encountered this guy Twice in Jewish history. Once because he is the boy that was revived by Eliyahu Hanavi. 
That's who he is. That would have been back here in the middle of the 800s. So he's about 150 years old? Well, he's probably, by the time he's probably about 100 years old, but that's not a problem. Eliyahu revives the boy, but he has an encounter with Elisha as well. Two things. One is, he's the boy that was revived by Eliyahu. And then he's also, anyone know the other one? There was a mission given to Eliyahu that he didn't fulfill. And he passed it on to Elisha. Eliyahu passed this mission given by God, passed it on to Elisha. Elisha didn't do it either. He gave it to someone else. That someone else is Yonah ben Amitai. The mission, which none of them seemed to want to do, and eventually Yonah ben Amitai got stuck with the job, was to anoint Yehu. Remember, I spoke about the big Jehu revolution, the Yehu revolution that ended the house of Omri, that big bloodbath that, end, that was cataclysmic, ended everything here. The guy who went to anoint him, we're not told exactly who said that it was given to Eliyahu. Eliyahu gave the job to Elisha, and Elisha sent a Navi. That Navi is Yonah bin Amitai. So we already know, if we follow Chazal, Yonah bin Amitai is a familiar figure. We have an explicit mention of him during the time of Yarov Amhasheni. The book of Yonah is the only book in Tanakh which does not mention the Jewish people. Just like Esther is the only book that doesn't mention God, Yonah doesn't mention the people of Israel. From the very beginning, Yonah is given a task because God says to Yonah, about this city called Nineveh. And if we're here, Nineveh has already started, as the capital of the Assyrian Empire, has already started to consolidate this thing we now know as the Neo-Assyrian Empire. Remember, the Assyrian Empire has various manifestations through history. The biggest manifestation of the Assyrian Empire is what we call the New or Neo-Assyrian Empire, which happens here, which is the one that really concerns Jewish history. It had just started confirming itself and getting going. But it wasn't really, really on the stage yet. And he's sent there. God sends him there. Ukra aleha. Call out about this place. Go there and prophesy. Ki alta ra'atam lefanai. Because their evil has risen up before me, says God. What evil? What was the sin of Nineveh? What was the sin of Nineveh for which Yonah was asked to go and prophesy about and tell them that if they didn't sort themselves out, they're going to meet a quick end? I'm going to come back to it because it's quite amazing. I'm going to come back to that in a few moments. I want to ask another question. Why did Yonah run away? Now I know that there are many, many answers to that. But primarily what I'm asking is why did Yonah not want Nineveh to do Teshuvah? Because he foresaw that they would destroy his nation. Very good. So Chazal give us two lines, basically. One line, which is the possibility that... was One line is that, in a sense, the... The idea of going to a foreign wicked nation and preaching them to do repentance and them repenting couldn't sit within Yonah's perspective on justice. It just didn't make sense the way he understood the way the world was run. But Chazal also tell us that he knew deeply why does he say to God, I don't want anything to do with this? Is because he knew that if he did this and Nineveh did repent, then oy vavoy to Am Yisrael, who were not listening to their prophets. Am Yisrael were going to be in a very difficult situation if that nation did repentance, and in all likelihood, as in fact happened, Nineveh would eventually be used as the means of destruction for the kingdom of Israel. He didn't want anything to do with it. And he went off on a boat. Now, you're all familiar with the fish, I don't need to spend too much time on what was happening in the fish. There are some misconceptions sometimes about what was going on in the fish. Sometimes when you look at uh, late medieval or you know, early modern paintings of Jonah in the whale, as they call it, it's not a whale, it was a dug. But if you look at Jonah in the whale, it's like, you know, it's 
quite luxurious there. He's got a chaise lounge. He's sitting there. He's like smoking a pipe. He's reading a book. It's like a big room. It hasn't got walls. It's got a rib cage. But you know, it's like he's there. It's nice. It wasn't like that at all. It was extremely unpleasant. Chazal tell us, in fact, that he first of all went down into a male fish. And when he was feeling a bit too much room, the male fish spat him out, spat him out into a female fish who was pregnant, and therefore the insides were just all squished. And eh, the, guys, the guy had absolutely nothing to do except pray. It was the only thing he could do, and eventually he prayed. Many, many so-called critics of biblical poetry do not like Yonah's poem. I actually have even read one perush which suggested that that's the whole reason the fish spewed him out, because his poetry was so terrible. <laughs> At any event, the waters come over me. It was not good, especially read Chazal and Yonah. It was very, very tough for Yonah. Eventually he prayed. Eventually he gets spit out, spat out, and he gets given a second chance. There is some form of discussion about the level of Teshuvah that was effected within Nineveh. By the way, by the time Yonah gets to Nineveh, he's famous. Not only is this the guy that they, you know, threw in the water and the thing suddenly became calm and he survived being swallowed by a fish, but Chazal tell us that the fish itself actually accompanied him 965 parasaot on his way to Nineveh. On the land. This was, well, this fish was very unique, obviously. Ah. <laughs> uh, Look, Chazal often speak Blashon Guzma, and they often speak allegorically. We know that. It's not Apicurus to say that we don't have to take everything Chazal tells us literally, but we do have to understand that there's a deep message inside it. What Chazal are trying to tell us is that Yona arrived at Ninveh with a big, big reputation. When he turned around and said, another 40 days, and Ninveh is going to be overturned, destroyed, People tended to believe him. There is a discussion, however, in Chazal on the extent of the Teshuvah. Some want to say that the Teshuvah was only external. They only did Teshuvah on public affairs and not on private ones. And others, there's, a, there's one uh, view in Yerushalmi which goes entirely the other way, which wants to tell us that the Teshuvah was so deep that if a guy had built a tower at whose base was a stolen beam, he would deconstruct the entire tower to return the beam to its original owner. Whatever was the case, there was a massive teshuva. Now what was this sin, as I said before? What was it? Obviously some level of social injustice. The Radak tells us, he actually points it out, it's in the Psukim, he doesn't have to come up with the answer, he shows us. There is only one sin, one type of sin, that causes God to need Am Yisrael to actually send Nevi'im, to have a direct relationship with this nation via Am Yisrael for the purposes of spiritual teshuva. That sin is if a society is in the grip of a particularly unpleasant phenomenon. That particularly unpleasant phenomenon that from time to time grips societies throughout history has a name. That name is in the book of Yonah because at the end when they do repentance they repent from this and it tells us what that is. It's one word. Hamas. Hamas is not a new thing. Now the word Hamas has two sorts of meanings. One meaning is it's understood to be violence, and another meaning is that it's robbery. Truth is that Hamas is a unique type of robbery, it's violent robbery. From time to time, societies come under the psychotic grip of a phenomenon called Hamas. We were told to send a Navi to tell this society to transform itself and do teshuvah or the end would come very quickly. That society, Ninveh, through their king, you see, everything goes through the king when it comes to nations. You've got to deal with the king. 
The king first of all repents, the king tells everyone to repent, and they all repent. So other nations need kings to direct them and guide them. There are several layers of understanding of Yonah that have come down to us, some of which are extremely powerful. I don't have to go into any more Mepharshim on Yonah for you. You know it's a phenomenal book. But I just want to highlight a couple of the two or three of the major strands on a deeper, slightly more mystical level. The Perush of the Gra on Yonah, and not only the Gra, who reflects other Perushim as well, but he's famous for this. It's an amazing Perush on Yonah, where he describes the entire book as, in fact, the journey of the soul. Yonah is the Neshama. It's sitting up there in Gan Eden. It's very happy, thank you very much. And it gets told that it must come to the world for a purpose. Its initial response upon coming into the body is to if try and run away from its purpose. It has a false consciousness about its own destiny. The fish for the Gra represents death. And the spitting out from the fish and going on further represents the reincarnated soul who comes back again to complete the task and the destiny which it didn't do before. The Gra, like many, many Kabbalists, believes that most of us are reincarnated souls. That doesn't mean that I'm sharing my body with Chaim Shmerel who lived in the 16th century. It means that I am Chaim Shmerel. <laughs> and Chaim Shmerel was someone before him, going all the way back to one person that stood at Har Sinai as a member of Am Yisrael and heard the Torah. And that gave me a destiny that I have to reveal in the world. The more I reveal my destiny, the more I reveal my real self. The whole point of your life, if we look at it historically and ethically, and this comes back to what you and I were talking about at the beginning, is that Yonah thinks that he understands justice according to certain ways. He's wrong. His perception of justice, God's understanding of justice, is way beyond Yonah's. God demands repentance. He demands teshuvah. He demands transformation from all societies. It's a big, big point in the universalization of ethical monotheism. Hosea and Amos have established that God wants ethical monotheism, wants ethics from his relationship with the one God. Yonah has a thesis. God's big, but I don't know how big. Soon as that storm comes up on the boat, he's into catatonic acceptance. There is nothing I can do. Now my thesis has been proved correct. God actually is a lot bigger than just the land of Israel. That's a big point. We're dealing now with a universal God that demands an ethical perspective from other nations and other places. And that's a big turning point. That's a big turning point in spiritual consciousness. But perhaps the biggest understanding of Yonah, which has come to us from various Kabbalistic sources, probably the most famous of which is Tikkun Ezoar, is that Yonah is the Jewish people. Yonah is the Jewish people who are punished, i.e. they go into Galut when they do not try to effect other nations to do Teshuvah. Our purpose and our calling in the world is to get other nations to understand God. And that involves Teshuvah. It is not the case as Yonah was shown, that nations are simply destroyed when they're wicked without being given a chance. But their chance comes through us. And when we don't do it, we're sent into Galut to have to do it. If we can do it from here, we don't have to go into Galut. This is the idea of the Tikkun Azar. It's a very mystical idea. It has big, big ramifications. Yonah is a very, very important stage in the universalization. I keep coming back to this. Look at the consciousness of Am Yisrael before and after these events. We take these ideas for granted now. God is the God of the whole world. God demands justice from all nations. But these 
need to be brought out in unique and specific moments in Am Yisrael's spiritual history, of which Yonah is a big moment. Amazingly, Yonah is not being sent from some ideal society to prophesy to Nineveh. The society he's coming from is the very society that Hosea and Amos are telling you is so deeply troubled in its own iniquities. But Yonah is told, I have to go to Nineveh. They are in the grip of this thing called Hamas. And I have to go to them and I have to tell them and I have to warn them because God demands justice. Yonah is sent out precisely at the time where things are problematic here. He knows why he's sent out. Not just to prove the point that God is the God of all nations and the whole world. But because, precisely because things are bad, God is choosing the nation that he is going to use as the instrument of Israel's punishment. If the Assyrians had not done Teshuvah, then they would not have been that agency. The point is, they listened to the Navi, we didn't. And that's a big point. This next segment is taken from a Zoom series David gave this month, entitled, The Power of Change. Those of you who are familiar with Talmud will know the unique way that sometimes it approaches Torah and approaches uh, the, the biblical verses. So for an example of that on the subject of Teshuvah, we looked in the last couple of weeks at some of the biblical examples, but the way the Talmud looks at it, that is very unique, and I think an example of that is what it says in Avodazar and Tractate Avodazarah, where it discusses the, which I'll come back to also later, uh, the idea that Teshuvah is so foundational to Jewish spirituality. The, the idea of return, the idea of response, the idea of repentance, the idea of inner transformation, that the Talmud tells us that in fact the whole reason why certain sins happened was only in order to bring about the concept of Teshuvah in the world. The Talmud locates two particular sins that trouble it. One of them is the sin of the people of Israel at the Golden Calf. Uh, this is astonishing. Uh, it's still astonishing even when we read it today, because obviously the Jewish people themselves were already existing at a high level. God has said to them, you know, I wish that you would always be like this. When they receive the Torah and they develop this covenantal relationship with God, and then Moses walks out the room for a few days, and off they go, and they're doing idol worship. And the rabbis are troubled by this. They go, why would they even be in that space to even do that? And the other sin that troubles the Talmud is, of course, the sin of King David. who He writes the Psalms. He's a faithful servant of God. He's humble. He's got all the things going on. And suddenly he does this uh, incredible, inappropriate deed. So the Talmud comes and tells us that the entire reason why these sins happened was in order to bring, and, and uniquely, exegetically from the Talmud's perspective, was only in order to bring about the concept of Shashuvah. And we have those two examples because one, one applies to the Teshuvah uh, of an individual and the other applies to the teshuva of a community. And we need both of those examples because if we just had the one of the individual, uh, we wouldn't necessarily know one from the other. And likewise, if we only had about the teshuva of a community, we wouldn't necessarily work out the individual from that. But in both cases, uh, the individual and the community are afforded this opportunity of self-transformation so radically, according to the Talmud, that that's even the reason why those sins are recorded. So that's an example of how the Talmud approaches it exegetically, and it places Teshuvah as the central motif in the whole of the biblical narrative. Even sins that people do, they only do to have a transformative outcome. It doesn't imply that we should be running around doing sins in order to be able to say to people, oh, I'm only sinning so that I can do Teshuvah, because if you go and you run around and you sin in order to do that, your, your teshuva is not going to be that authentic. It will simply be an excuse for your sin. But in retrospect, the Talmud looks that way at these, uh, these incredible episodes. 
But I want to now move to the uh, crux of what I want to talk about today. Some very, very unique passages about Teshuvah that give us an idea of the way the Talmud develops the concept of Teshuvah. Teshuvah was a concept that is really presented to us by the, the prophets of, of the Bible uh, who uh, help us to understand that this is a phenomenal gift to humanity. But in the uh, last tractate, or in the, at the, at towards the end of, uh, of, of the tractate of Yoma, uh, the Talmud talks about Teshuvah quite extensively. And what we're finding there is that a number, as you can imagine, since it's a topic in Judaism, it has a, no, a number of halachot, a number of practical directives and parameters around Teshuvah, but I just want to focus on a couple of interesting aspects of them. And we spoke last week about this idea of restoration, this idea of the fact that we need to uh, seek redress for the wrongs that we have done. And as everybody, I'm sure, in this room famously knows, uh, if you have offended someone with your words, you need to go and seek forgiveness from them. And the Talmud tells us that you should do that three times. After you've gone to someone three times and you've said to them, I'm sorry, I've offended you uh, and shown a contrition and a humble request for forgiveness, the Talmud says you've done that three times, you are uh, exempt from any further efforts. Uh, you've tried your best. And that's a famous halakha that we know. The Talmud will also tell us in that same passage that if the person you have offended, have offended has passed away, so you can't go and ask them directly for forgiveness, then you should go to their burial site, you should go to their grave and take a minyan with you and in front of the person's final resting place, you should ask forgiveness. There's a number of psalms you should say and so on, and you should ask forgiveness. That's important to remember. So fundamental and so central to our way of looking at spirituality and our way of living in the world, that even if the person you've offended has passed away, your obligation to go and ask forgiveness from the way that you've offended them uh, doesn't, uh, you're not absolved from that, that doesn't go away. And so we can see kind of an angle here where Teshuvah is very much located within the psychological makeup of the person that sinned. The person you've sinned against might have been in the next world, but you still have resolution to do in this one. Very important. And we learn about figures like Rabbi Zaira and so on. Great spiritual rabbis who, if they felt that someone had offended them, they would constantly make themselves available to them so that the other person could apologize to them. It's not just that you go running around seeking the person you need to apologize to. If you feel that someone needs to apologize, don't make yourself scarce to them. I mean, we think about this today. If we feel that someone has offended us, so what most people do today is that they avoid that person. They say, I don't want to see that person. That person offended me. But the true spiritual approach is that if you think someone has offended you, make yourself available to them that they can apologize. And there's a very uh, fascinating uh, case about that that I actually have spoken about before. The incredible case of Abba Aricha, uh, otherwise known in the Talmud as Rav, probably the first of the great sages of the Gemara when the Mishnah was completed in the land of Israel, edited pretty much by Rabbi Yehuda HaNasi in his generation in round about the year 200 CE, the shift of centrality of the Jewish world really moves after that to Babylonia, and we start the phase of the Gemara, that phase of the Talmud that takes the Mishnah, which is the essentialized oral Torah written down in succinct form, and starts to unpack it and expand it and apply it. That really is the rise of Rabbinic Judaism, as we understand it, the development of the Talmud in Babylonia, between the 3rd and 6th centuries. And that project was started off by Abba Aricha, who we know as Rav. 
Uh, and uh, there's a famous story uh, told about Rav in that section of Yoma towards the end of the tractate dealing with Yom Kippur. So I'm just going to give a loose translation of that because it tells us that Rav had a, a bit of an issue with someone and he, uh, it was a butcher actually. I don't know if any of you have ever been offended by your butcher or have uh, ever had issues of complaint where you feel that you were you were wronged by the butcher in some ways. But uh, Rav had that sort of situation. So he's waiting around and this butcher doesn't come to him to apologize. And in fact, he doesn't come to him on the eve of Yom Kippur. And the eve of Yom Kippur, as you know, is a very, very special time to try and restore balances and to we, we were always ringing up everybody and going, oh, if I've done anything to offend you, uh, please forgive me. And people do that almost as a kind of a ritual. But in some cases, they do that to everyone they know, except the actual people they've offended, uh, uh, who they try and avoid. But in fact, you should really sit down before Yom Kippur and think, who have I offended? And you should uh, contact them and seek their forgiveness. So Rav decided that he would go and visit this butcher. Uh, and when he visited the butcher, that he would afford the butcher an opportunity to apologize to him. So uh, the Talmud tells us that Rav heads off to the butcher. And on the way, he meets another great sage, a sage called Rav Huna. And Rav Huna said to him, where are you going? And he said, I'm actually going to try and make peace with that, with that butcher. And Rav Huna could tell the look on Rav's face. And apparently uh, Rav Huna knew the butcher, uh, so he already was predicting that this outcome was not going to be good. And he said uh, that Rav is actually going to end up killing someone based on uh, what I can see over here. Rav went and he stood in the butcher shop. And uh, the butcher was sitting and he was chopping up some meat, a chicken or whatever. And, and, and he lifted up his eyes and he saw Rav standing there. And he said to him, go away. I, I, I don't have anything to do with you. And uh, instead of apologizing, he basically told Rav to bog off. And as he was doing that, he chopped a bone and a bit of the bone flew out and it stuck in his, it went into his neck and it killed him. That's the Talmud's way of saying that if someone comes to apologize to you, you really, really should forgive them. That's the, that's the nice outcome. You should certainly forgive them if they're one of the great spiritual leaders of the generation. But even an, even an ordinary person, you should forgive them if they come to you and seek, genuinely seek your forgiveness. However, You don't have to. This idea that the sages were seeking people out so that these people could apologize to them was because the behavior of these rabbis was extraordinary. They actually went out of their way to forgive people. But even if someone comes to you to apologize, you should, but you don't have to. And that involves an extraordinary story that I want to uh, just look at for a few minutes that actually is so powerful because it relates to the origins of the Talmud itself. I just want to run through this quickly because I want to show you the centrality of Teshuvah. Uh, Rav himself, before he went to Babylonia, was a great student of the editor of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yehuda Hanasi. And when he was uh, a young rabbinic student, uh, well, not just a student, he was already almost a master in his own right, he gave a class. Uh, and at this class, various people came into the study hall to hear this class. It was not the main lecture of the day. It was like a pre-lecture. So people were arriving at different points. And each time one of the great sages of the generation entered the room, Rav, out of respect for them, went all the way back to the beginning of his talk. It would be a little bit like if I was giving this talk now and uh, Rabbi Ganendi suddenly walked in and I said, oh, you didn't hear the beginning. It was a really good beginning. I'm going back to the beginning. And then 10 minutes later, 
Rabbi Jonathan Sachs walked in and I said, oh, Jonathan Sachs is here. I've got to start from the beginning again. And then, I don't know, some other great rabbi walks in and I'm going, oh, he's walked in. So Rav was doing this and eventually got to the point where one rabbi walked in and Rav said, you know what, I can't keep going back to the beginning. And so he didn't. And this rabbi was incredibly offended. One of the great, Rabbi Hanina, one of the great uh, rabbis of the generation, and Rav went to him on 13 Yom Kippur's in a row to seek forgiveness, and he didn't forgive him. And eventually, as a result of that constant cloud over their relationship, Rav ended up going to Babylonia, uh, where he started the whole Talmudic project. So in a sense, the engine of the whole of the Talmud really begins from a case of someone leaving in order to avoid causing offence. Uh, because they had tried to seek repentance, they had tried to, or to seek forgiveness, they'd done Teshuvah, they realised they had offended this person. And even though Rav was not obligated to do that more than three times, he did it 13 Yom, Erev Yom Kippur's in a row in order to try and get the repentance of uh, Rabbi Hanina. The following segment is taken from a lecture delivered in 2008 in New York called Dialogues with the Creator of the Universe. Apologies for the sound interference at the end of this segment. I just want to talk briefly about a very, very important figure who has a deep concept of Teshuvah. You know, those who study modern history and modern European history, people make a big thing about the 19th century story of emancipation. Yep, the fact that Jews have equal rights with other citizens, other human beings on the planet is no older than about 150 years in most countries of the world. Astonishing fact. And people realized that right across Europe, in the wake of Napoleon and so on, right throughout the 19th century, Jews were being emancipated in different places. They didn't really become emancipated in Germany properly till around 1870. But just because they were officially emancipated didn't mean that emancipation was a reality. If you wanted a nice, permanent, cushy government job, if you wanted a tenure at a university, if you wanted a commission as an officer in the army, if you wanted many of the trappings of society, you were officially allowed to apply for those things if you were Jewish, but you weren't going to get them unless you actually went to the baptismal font one Sunday morning and stuck your head in and converted, at least nominally, to Christianity, and then it would be okay. Unfortunately and tragically, many young Jewish people did this in Germany towards the end of the 19th century because they felt that, oh well, it's just a formality. And in any case, I need it because otherwise I won't have a career. And many, many people held out. This was not the case by the time we get to the 1920s. But I'm talking more like, you know, the 1880s, 1890s. The pressure was still significant. One family, a very, very brilliant intellectual family that had held out against this pressure, of course, was the Rosenzweig family. They were a family of academics and brilliant thinkers, talented in different fields across the arts and across the humanities. And they had a young son called Franz. Franz Rosenzweig was under incredible pressure to convert to Christianity. So much so, in fact, that he spent one night with his cousin. It was a big shock because a cousin of the Rosenzweig family had converted. And young Franz spent an evening with his cousin and all night they talked about this. And come the dawn, and dawn is often a time where people have realizations, as I mentioned before, come the dawn, and the cousin says, no, France, what's going on? You haven't got any answers. The Rosenzweig family is an incredibly assimilated family. Don't forget that, that we're talking about France Rosenzweig. We're talking about a huge... Uh, but the family was very assimilated. Young France, when he was 11 years old, had to come home from school crying 
with his report card, which was all straight A's. He's a brilliant kid. And his father had said, France, this is fantastic. Why are you crying? And France had said to his father, because I don't care about this. All I want is for someone to teach me Hebrew. He's a unique human being, Franz Rosenzweig. But in his early 20s, under this pressure, come the dawn, after a night of conversation with his cousin who's converted, Franz realized he has no answer. And basically, he's going to have to convert. Not out of career, not for social advancement, but because authentically and intellectually, he does not have the answers to the challenges thrown up by his Christian relative. Franz Rosenzweig, however being Franz Rosenzweig, decides that he's not going to just convert to Christianity. He's going to go into the church, not as a pagan, but as a Jew. So before he becomes Christian, he's going to go to shul on Yom Kippur. And after Yom Kippur, after confessing himself before his Father in Heaven, he is going to go the next day and to the church and convert to Christianity as a Jew. It's a big, big idea. Of course, he goes to some shtibel that he finds in Berlin, and he never makes it to the church. Because during that Yom Kippur, Franz Rosenzweig had a tremendous set of realizations that he writes famously about. Out of which Franz Rosenzweig, who was you know, subsequently sent to the front in the First World War and wrote this incredible book called Star of Redemption, which he wrote on little postcards from the trenches and was sent back so that none of it would be lost. He has a unique concept of Teshuvah that became the concept of Teshuvah for the whole of the 20th century for anyone returning to Judaism from secularity and from assimilation. Franz Rosenzweig says that God is constantly calling the Jewish people away from non-Jewish culture. This is not some, you know, from Rabbi and Masharim saying this. This is Franz Rosenzweig, one of the great assimilated intellectual philosophers. Teshuvah means an ongoing commitment to observe more and more mitzvot. It doesn't mean that I'm going to observe all the mitzvot exactly as they should be tomorrow. There are some that I have not yet got around to reconciling myself with and committing. But it is a movement. Teshuvah should be a movement. It is dynamic, not static, because God doesn't call just once. God is constantly calling the Jewish people to return. So that became Rosenzweig's call and Rosenzweig's concept of Teshuvah became the big 20th century cultural movement of Teshuvah that then really, really sprung up in the latter half of the 20th century with what with the notion of what we have today of the concept of Baal Teshuvah. But Teshuvah has unfortunately, and Rosenzweig's concept unfortunately, has become somewhat corrupted. Because people think that to do Teshuvah, to be a Baal Teshuvah, means that you suddenly become religious, which would have been brilliant for Rosenzweig, given that where he's coming from, is not what Teshuvah actually means. Because Teshuvah is not the decision that tomorrow I'm going to wake up and keep Shabbat and keep Kashrut and I'm going to put on Tefillin and I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. Because that's really what a Jew should be doing anyway. Teshuvah is an inner transformation. I want to give you a summary, a one-minute summary, because I know I've been talking for a while, but a one-minute summary of an incredible book on Teshuvah that if you get a chance to read, I'm not even in the business of recommending this book. It's so high. It's not for me to recommend. It's just there. And if we can merit to understand it. But I think what is being effectively said in this book is this. Oh, I haven't told you what the book is. Nor have I told you who wrote it.
That's probably important information. <laughs> the author, contemporary of Rosenzweig, but entirely different, is Rav Cook. And the book is Orot HaTeshuvah, The Lights of Teshuvah. In Orot HaTeshuvah, Rav Cook is basically telling you that the universe as a whole is already existing. Rav Cook is telling you that the whole universe already exists in a state of Teshuvah. It's already returning. And there are three levels that Rav Cook talks about. The universe, the nation, because the nation is already existing in the level of Teshuvah. The nation of Israel has already, has always been, but actually has already physically returned to its land and is returning to its land. And all that's left is the individual. The individual is the last unit that needs to effect a teshuvah. And that individual is you. Each and every person is that individual that needs to complete the process of Teshuvah that the universe is already existing in. As we looked at in the Gemara, Teshuvah exists before the world is created. The universe is returning. The nation is returning. Where are you? And then amazingly, amazingly, Rav Kook then reverses the whole picture. That's Teshuvah, he tells you. And then there's Tikkun. And Tikkun goes the other way. Tikkun starts with you, the individual. By you doing the Tikkun in yourself, you then cause a Tikkun in the nation. And Tikkun in the nation then effects the Tikkun of the universe. So it is exactly symmetrical. We have two movements. We have Teshuvah and we have Tikkun. Teshuvah is related to creation because the world is created in Teshuvah. Tikkun is related to redemption. This final segment also comes from David's recent online series, The Power of Change. I'm going to put someone out there and it's a bit obscure, but when Avraham, when Abraham is uh, wandering around over there, he uh, encounters a king called Avimelech. You'll find this in chapter 20 of the book of Bereshit, uh, of the book of Genesis. And uh, they go there and Avraham tells Sarah to say that uh, she's not his wife because uh, he doesn't want to be killed on her account. And indeed, they abduct Sarah and, uh, they keep, and Avimelech keeps her for himself. He doesn't end up touching her, but he's got her there in his, in, his, uh, in his quarters or in his harem or whatever, and he's just waiting, and God comes to him in a dream. Now, apart from the fact, those interested in dream sequences, that this is actually the first dream in the Bible, but God comes to him and he explains to him that, you know, <laughs> you've got someone else's wife, and that you'd better fix up that situation. So what we see is the very next day, Avimelech takes Sarah, and he restores her to Avraham. Teaching us that a foundational idea, that there are two ideas really, at least, in the concept of Teshuvah. One is the inner transformation, but the other is the outer restoration, or an attempt to uh, correct, or to fix, or to restore the situation that you have corrupted. And we see this with Avimelech. But we also see with Avimelech the concept of, and this is possibly if there's one point I'm going to be making today, it's this point, that, you know, we today, 
it would appear. And once again, I have to be careful. I'm, I'm a scholar, not, not, not a rabbi sitting here. I don't want to get preachy. But what we do see today is we do see a culture of excuses. People have all sorts of excuses for why they behave in any particular way. The whole of 20th century psychology is built on the fact that, oh, you must have had some trauma with your parents. You didn't get on with your father. You didn't get on with your mother. You were bullied at school. This happened to you. That happened to you. Oh, you poor thing. You went through this. Oh, you're part of this minority. You're part of that particular underprivileged. You're oppressed by this. You're oppressed by that. And who can blame you for being the piece of dreck that you are? Look at the circumstances you went through. Look at all the different things. And people go, yes, that's right. It's not my fault. I'm a consequence of social circumstances. I'm sorry. No, no, no. And what we, what we really need to understand is that proper teshuva doesn't happen unless you're doing it without excuses. You take responsibility. You own your behavior and you own the way in which you're going to fix it. Because you were the one that behaved badly and you are the one that has to fix it, and no one can change you. Avimelech might have had a very, very good claim, because Avimelech says, oh, I didn't know. He told me she was his sister. I didn't know it was his wife. I did this entirely innocently. In other words, he's even using innocence as an excuse, which is a very, very high-level excuse. But as God says to him, and if you look in the in the Talmud, in Masechet Baba Kama, they unpack this story, and God's going, <laughs> you still did it. You still did it. No one asked you. You might have thought it was his sister, but no one said you had to take his sister and abduct her. So you're still a grubber person who does that kind of thing. You might on this occasion have done it innocently, but had you thought it was his wife, you probably would have killed him. The fact that circumstantially you were innocent is irrelevant here. But still coming up with excuses. And of course, Avimelech himself went and uh, gave Avraham some uh, very healthy uh, presents so that Avraham would pay for Avimelech. We know that if you pray for someone else, it's a very meritorious thing. So the power of repentance and the power of teshuvah lies first and foremost in no excuses, in owning our behavior. But unless a person seriously takes responsibility and owns their own behavior, that path is not going to happen. I'm going to look at one more biblical figure because I, uh, uh, this biblical figure would probably require their own talk. But I'm going to look at them for just a few minutes and they, because it exemplifies what I've been talking about. And that is that the famous case of King David. Now, uh, some of you would uh, be familiar with this, obviously. I'm not going to go over yet again in detail the behavior of King David as we find it in uh, chapter 11 of the second book of Shmuel. But... Uh, in short, in brevitas, obviously David is a great king and the armies are going out to war even now without him. He's got very good generals and he's there on the, it's a nice warm balmy summer evening in Jerusalem and he's uh, hanging out on the rooftop as you do and he looks over at another rooftop in Jerusalem as you do and he sees a woman bathing as you do. And obviously he's extremely taken with this and he summons her, he has her brought to him and he has intimate relations with her and she becomes pregnant. Uh, the problem with that is, is that she's married and she's married to someone who is a soldier in David's army. So David tries to organise, first of all, to fix this. So... We can see David trying to fix it without taking any responsibility for his actions and his behavior. He tries to fix it by getting the husband to come home from the army and sleep with his wife so that everything will look kosher. 
But that doesn't work because the man doesn't want to leave the army and, he, and, and he's under orders, he's under field orders and he doesn't want to go home while all his mates are sleeping in the mud in the tents. So David organises for uh, this soldier to be in the front line of a very, very difficult assault against the city and he is killed. Once he's killed, uh, David takes Bathsheba the uh, this uh, soldier's wife, Uriah's wife, and uh, brings her to him and she lives with him and eventually has the child. And it's Nathan the prophet who goes to David Amelech and says, King, I have a justice problem, I have a social justice problem. I've got a situation, we had a, we had a, a visitor to a place, a visitor and a guest of a very wealthy man who instead of taking from his own flocks, went to the house of a poor man who only had one sheep. And this sheep, uh, it was so pathetic that this sheep was not even a sheep really. It was more like a household pet, it was a member of the household. It would eat at the family dining table. It was the only sheep they had. The family loved it. <coughs> and instead of serving one of his own many sheep to the guest, the rich guy went to the poor guy's house, took his only sheep, slaughtered it and fed it to his guest. And David goes, that's just so appalling. That's horrendous. That man should die. That's just awful. And of course, Natan Hanavi says to him, Nathan the prophet says to him in this phenomenal words when you read chapter 12 of the second book of Samuel, Atahaish. You are that man. And immediately, immediately, King David has a realization of what he's done, a realization of his own responsibility, a real, an, an ownership of his own sin and his own behavior, and he utters the words, Chatati Lashem, I've sinned to God. And he collapses in uh, a process of, uh, of, of the beginnings of Teshuvah. Now, that, so in other words, there's no excuses coming out. It's not like Adam and it's not like Avimelech. There's no excuses coming out. But what is interesting is that to compare it with another king of Israel who said exactly the same thing, and not that far away in time. And that was David's predecessor, King Saul. If you look at chapter 15 of the first book of Samuel, where Saul is told by the prophet Samuel to go and wipe out the nation of Amalek. I'm not going into that very, very complex moral story right now. And Saul does that, but he does the wrong thing and he preserves the king and so on. And he has a fight with the prophet Samuel and all of these things that Saul is doing that are not entirely uh, in accord with how he's meant to be behaving. And when Saul threatens to take away the kingdom from him, what does, when Samuel threatens to take away the kingdom from Saul, what does Saul say? Chatati Hashem, I've sinned to God. But then he adds an excuse because he said, Kiareti, because I was afraid of the people. I did it for political purposes. I understand it wasn't quite the correct thing, but I have a reason for why I behave like that. I have an excuse. And that didn't help Saul. The kingdom was ripped from him and was given to another. The exemplar that I want to bring from King David is the fact that real teshuva begins where there are no excuses. Where we realize that on the one hand we have to do an outward restoration to attempt that. But you cannot open the door to inner transformation if you are holding on to excuses. If you are holding on to justifications for your behavior. Everybody has that doorway into Teshuvah. 
It's a phenomenal idea in Judaism and a phenomenal idea in the world that a person can be defined not simply by what they do, but by the power of change. Ultimate, the ultimate human ability to change oneself and to modify one's behavior, but that doorway cannot be opened unless we own it, unless we remove ourselves from any other excuses and justifications. This is the essential point that emerges from the sources that we look at in the, uh, in the Torah. I mean, even if we look at Saul, you know that, I mean, Saul, I'm sure all of us who would have had children get exasperated, with, I'm ending on this point, get exasperated by children when we're trying to correct their behavior and they go, but I've said sorry. There's no change in behavior. There's no acknowledgement. But saying sorry is not teshuvah. Teshuvah begins when we eradicate all our justifications and excuses and begin to own our ability to change. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the talk. For episode notes and transcripts, or to learn more about David's next classes and projects, visit davidsolomon.online. You can also find David on Instagram or Facebook. Thank you. We hope to see you again soon.